Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bougay, and everybody out there listening right now today, I want you to be thinking, who could I possibly be talking to here? Just be thinking in your mind who it might be. Are you right? Are you right? It's Rachel Madel. Did you get it right, everybody? <laughs> who got it right? Every 100% accuracy, I'm sure, Chris. Um, yes, Chris, I'm here, and I'm excited because I just played a new game that I want to talk about. Let's talk about it. What is this new game that you've played? Well, you already referenced it in the beginning, but it's called The Mind. And I was super excited to be introduced to this game. It's essentially the way the game works is there's a set of 100 cards. So each card has a number on it. It's one to 100. And the whole kind of objective of the game is to put the deck of cards in, I guess it's ascending order, right? You start with the lowest number and then you go to the highest number. And you know, you each there's different rounds, and there's different kind of like um, things that you get. Like you can get an extra life. You can get what is it? A star card, Chris? It's a ninja throwing star. Yes, yes, it's a ninja. Sorry, ninja stars. <laughs> and essentially, the the whole kind of catch of the game is you can't talk. So you're working collaboratively with someone to essentially like get into their mind and figure out like should I put my card down or should you put your card down? Um, and so it was such a great experience and it reminded me a lot of the work that we do as speech language pathologists or the work that we should be doing as speech language pathologists um, because es essentially like you have to use other ways to communicate besides using verbal speech. Um, and that's what our kids are experiencing all the time. Well, okay. So as a matter of fact, the reason I know about this game is because Sean Pearson bought the game for me. You know, Sean is a big, uh, if you listen to the podcast, has been on the podcast a couple times as a speech language pathologist up in Canada and um, is big into games. So he's the one who introduced it to me, got it for the family, and then we've played it together. In fact, I just played it this weekend with my daughter. We went to a coffee shop and played The Mind a lot. And then that and later on in that afternoon, we played with uh, her, she had her friend and, and my son, and we were all sitting around playing the mind. And it is so true, right? Like you're doing a lot of nonverbal communication. And I even feel like that's a little bit of cheating. Like you're just supposed to be like um, kind of getting in sync together. And the more you play it, the better you get at it, right? Uh, which is such an interesting concept that that you're having this deck of cards in front of you that has numbers and the other people have different numbers and you're putting them in order together without actually communicating. Chris, do you feel like, so I just was introduced to the game, so I've only had a few experiences with it. I love the game, I think it's super fun. Um, as someone who's, first of all, I was so excited to, to, I thought I could teach you about a game. I was like, Chris, have you heard about the mind? And of course we were like, yes, I've heard about the mind. <laughs> I was like, man, I will find a game, Chris Bouquet, that you've never played. That is on my bucket list. Um, but anyway, so my question is, as someone who's probably played the game a lot more than me, do you find that it's you are more in sync with the person or the team that you have? Like, is it person specific? Or is it just like the more you play, generally speaking, you get better regardless of the, the partners that you're with? I think it has everything to do with the partner that you're with. So Maggie and I played uh, a lot on this particular, whatever, well, last Saturday, and her and I got in sync together and got much farther along uh, putting things in the right order. Then when we played and we brought in Tucker and her friend, we were back at square one um, and we were, had to you get used to the sort of the timing of another person and sort of know like, okay, based on how she's sort of sitting right now, chances are she has a very high card. So I'm not, I, I'm going to play mine before she plays hers. So, so we get them in the right order. But other times when she's maybe sitting a little bit forward and leaning in, I'm like, oh, I think she's going to play something quick here. She's probably got a lower card. And you start to, again, just get into a rhythm. I, I, and I'm not sure I'm describing that well, because I'm describing it like I'm consciously thinking of it, but I'm not really consciously picking up those cues. I'm just sort of, or thinking through them in the moment, I'm just sort of reading it, you know? and she's just reading me. So I, to answer your question, it is totally about with the other person, being, a, 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 being with a, a partner with another person or with the other people that you're playing with. Yeah, and that was kind of my hunch, but I just wanted to confirm that because um, it feels like you start learning how to read someone and learning their you know, nonverbal communication. And the reason I wanted to bring it up during today's banter was because I feel like 
what a lesson it is in how we, we work with our students. I feel like the most powerful thing that we can do for our kids with complex communication needs is take a step back from our therapy targets and our activities and all these things and how can we just actually observe a student. Um, one of my favorite things to do during a session is start the session by having a few fun things in the room and just like not saying anything and just observing what the student does when they come in the room. Um, are they, you know, going towards the Play-Doh or the sensory area or, you know, we can do so, we, we can get so far with our students by just observing what, they, what they're naturally drawn to and following that. Um, and then, you know, more importantly, how do our kids start learning how to communicate with us in ways that are nonverbal? Because with kids with complex communication needs, they either you know, might not have any access to communication if they haven't been set up with an AAC system, or you know, they're still learning how to use language on their AAC system. So what are ways that we can observe the nonverbal communication that they're showing us and then attach language to it? Um, one of my favorite resources that uh, we have on my website, it's our AAC vocabulary bundle. And the reason I like that is because it, it has a sheet that's all about nonverbal communication. So I'll pull this up with families and, you know, especially in the kind of initial stages of AAC, typically this is in an assessment setting where I'm like trying to figure out the right tool for a student, or I'm just trying to figure out language opportunities for a student. And we're really detailing like, okay, how are they nonverbally communicating? Are they using facial expressions? Are they shaking their head? No. Are they pulling you when they want you to come somewhere? Um, our kids are doing all these things. They've learned to compensate for lack of communication, uh, or I should rather say lack of language. Um, they've learned to compensate by using nonverbal communication. So, you know, the intent for communication is already there, right? If a, a child's pulling you, you know, they already have an intention for communication. They want, you know, you to come with them. So it's really easy to just start modeling and attaching language to that opportunity. Um, kids are obviously motivated because they're already communicating with you. Um, they just don't have the language yet to actually communicate that on their AAC system. Um, so anyway, I just feel like thinking about nonverbal communication as language opportunities um, is something that we can think about as clinicians and that can help guide the vocabulary that we're selecting for students. You know, something else that the mind reminds me of in, in sort of it's related to what you're mentioning here is, uh, and I'm, I know you know these parents, you meet a parent who knows their child so well they can anticipate what the the what the motions mean or interpret what emotion might mean, what a gestural um, uh, movement might mean. Uh, oh, when they sit like that, it means, or, uh, oh, when they make that sound, it means they need this. And it's a shared communication between two people, again, very similar to the mind. Maggie and I got in sync together within um, being with nonverbal communication uh, that wasn't even intentional, right? Um, here, it's similar in that where there's um, someone gets in sync with somebody else and sort of one can't anticipate or really understand without um, a greater shared uh, language, which is, I think, part of our responsibility is to to help help broaden so that it's not just one communication partner and put uh, uh, increase that shared experience with more people. One other thing I'll add to that, Chris, is uh, so I have a few kids on my caseload right now. They have uh, childhood apraxia of speech, um, pretty severe to the point where they need some type of augmentative communication. Um, so I I feel like those parents are the ones that like understand every, you know, approximation and, you know, these kids are really good at compensating by using nonverbal communication and also like they've learned how to decode their verbal approximations, right? Um, and something that just came up with one of my families in a similar situation is she's like, he's super independent, so he gets whatever he needs and I he knows I know what he's saying. So it's like, how do we, how do we in an authentic way create a situation where we, you know, help him learn that just because he says, gah, like not everyone's gonna know that means I wanna go to McDonald's. <laughs> in fact, no one's gonna know that except if mom decodes that for them. So, you know, how do we kind of marry this idea of creating something that's authentic, but also like being true to 
the relationship that this mom has with her son. Um, and so my, my suggestion was like, we don't have to just like pretend that we don't understand all of a sudden. Like that's not authentic to just be like, huh? Like I've understood this for the first six years of your life, but like now I don't understand. Like we don't have to do that. In fact, I think it's important to talk to kids about why we're using AAC and why this is important. And not everybody understands that you wanna to go to McDonald's right now. Um, and creating situations where we have other communication partners come in like grandma or a friend or someone who wouldn't be able to decode that to show only mommy understands that you wanna to go to McDonald's right now. Like we need to, to you know, communicate in a way that everybody understands. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up because it came up in last uh, session last week with a mom um and i think it's valid it's like we don't have to like play dumb and say like oh, i don't know what you want right now like obviously he knows you know <laughs> so like we need to honor that but we can also think how can we just talk openly with with kids about why this device is going to be really useful to them so that everybody understands what they're communicating I think something uh, that goes along with that is sort of accepting that ga means uh, that I want to go to McDonald's and at mom, um, then modeling it on the communication device saying, oh, so you're just, again, putting drops in the bucket, showing this is this is how you might say that to other people. Uh, so they get that experience because if you just accept it every single time, they won't get that experience. So at one, explicitly talking about it, two, um, practicing it with other people in the environment, and then three, you modeling when you can uh, as, as often as you can. Again, we know we've talked about that many times on the podcast that we know life gets like we just got to get in the car and get to McDonald's, right? So I don't always have a chance to model. But if you can, then model what you can to show this is how you'd say that to where other people would would understand it. Um, and then something also that I think is, I think, worth pointing out, again, with the mind, is that when Maggie and I were playing, and I'm curious about your experience when you're playing, did you lose a lot at first? Like, I, Maggie and I lost a lot at first, and we got better over time. Is that your experience as well? You know what, Chris? It actually wasn't my experience. So the person that I played with, I had a really instant connection with, and it was kind of shocking how well we did. And so that's why I'm like, what is everyone else's experience here? Um, you know, I wonder too if it's like, I feel like I've gotten really good at reading, you know, body language and nonverbal communication in the work that I do. So I wondered if that like had something to do with it too. But yeah, I, I had like instant success. We actually almost got to like the last round. And in fact, the second time we played, we did get to the last round. So Oh, you've won. You've, yes. I've never I've never won the mind. I've never gotten all the way. I've gotten far, but I've never gotten all the way there. So never won. <laughs> You've never won? Oh my god, I feel I feel so I feel so accomplished. <laughs> well, listen, the next time we get together, we'll have to play. It'll be a blast. Yes, I'm super excited. Okay, Chris, who's our interview with today? Hold on, can you read my mind? Do you know who it is, Rachel? Look, I'm rubbing my temples. Do you know who it might be? Can you guess? Are we in sync like this, Rachel, for for years and years and years together now? Do you know who it might be? I bet you do. It is... Andy Smith. Yes, and Andy Smith is our friend from um, Australia, one of our friends from Australia. Uh, we've uh, worked with her before in doing some presentations, and she has developed, well, we talk about a lot of stuff in this interview, but one of the things we talk about is a framework that she's developed, and I think everyone's going to find it really interesting. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Andy Smith. Are you enjoying this episode? We would love for you to take a few minutes to hit the subscribe button so you always know when we release new content. Even better, if you leave us a review on iTunes, then more people will find this podcast and learn about AAC. We also love reading your reviews on air. Thank you so much for your support. We love this community. Now we can head back into the episode. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Dr. Andy Smith. Uh, Dr. Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a speech pathologist um, in Australia. I am a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney, but I was born and grew up in the UK, qualified as a speech pathologist there, and then married an Aussie and ended up here. 
Ah, okay. That explains things a little bit. When we were coordinating schedules here for uh, the, the recording, you were saying you were jetting off to London. And I was like, ooh, like vacation. Was that like actually going home? Yeah, my mum's not well. So it was it was a flying trip with, uh, amid COVID travel restrictions and all kinds of other things. So yes, it was it was a bit bit hectic, but I'm glad we went. And now you're back. We're recording. And, now you're right. huh? and where are you in Australia, did you say? Sydney. Sydney. Okay, great. Um, and so let's talk about a little bit how you and I know each other, because we've met several years ago at, which was it? Was it, um, uh, I, I've it been to Australia twice, so. It was a Liberator workshop that you presented at with Bruce Baker that Liana Fox organised, and they coordinated with me to use the University of Sydney lecture theatres free of charge. And so I was there as the, the coordinator of the room space, um, and we met. Ah, uh, that's right. I remember that now. Okay, great. Um, and then, but we've then had corresponded since then, um, doing some presentations with Rachel, right? And yeah. um, and then we were sharing emails back and forth, and you have a bunch of stuff that we need to talk about, that everyone needs to hear about. So let's cool. talk about your work, um, like your day job. What do you do on your day job? Well, my day job, I am a lecturer at the University of Sydney, and I teach um, a range of courses to students studying a range of professions. So I teach speech pathology students about working with people with a lifelong disability, but I also teach a, a rehab counselling course that's an elective for lots of other courses. I also teach into an occupational therapy degree course. So I do quite a lot of varied teaching. The, the general theme is I talk about people with a disability and their communication needs pretty much all day, every day. Wow. Okay. So that sounds like uh, a lot. And um, let's talk about that pre-service model. What does that look like? I mean, how do you design the experience for those pre-service teachers? So for um, speech pathologists who are going to qualify and work with people with a disability, they, there is the, I think the old fashioned where I went to uni and probably where you went to uni, where, where it was kind of read the textbook and somebody will stand in front of you and put up slides that probably fundamentally say what the textbook says. Um, and you might go away having done an exam where you can talk about concepts, but when you actually get out there into the real world or on a clinical placement, you actually have no idea about what a person with a disability looks like or what your role is. So I started to really want to make my teaching not only engaging and fun, and I'm a big fan of UDL, so that engagement stuff comes in there for me really loud and clear, but also I wanted them to go away knowing that they would succeed on placement when they when they qualified or the, and that they would have be equipped to work with people with a disability when they qualified. So what we currently do and I've done this. So the other thing I've done is I've taught um, pre-service speech pathologists in Vietnam. Um, and that was really interesting. And I kind of had to think about my content there and what I did in developing, you know, the way you, it's iterative. Each time you teach, you improve it, you add to it, you, you keep growing it. And where I'm at right now is the first five weeks of the course is the facts and it's the textbook, but more interesting than the textbook. We then get to week seven and every single week is a case study. And it's, a, it's ideally a real person with a little video and I give them assessment data and I say, off you go and analyze the data. We then collaboratively write goals for that person. We then plan intervention for that person. And by the end of the lecture, which is a three-hour period of time, they have developed in their groups a PowerPoint presentation that summarizes this whole person. Next week, we move on to a new whole person. And the lovely thing about it is their final assignment is that they get given all of that information without any help, and they have to develop it into a presentation following the model that they've used from week seven right the way through to week 13. So it's got lots of really nice features in there in terms of universal design, but it's also really practical. You stole the word that was, you know, could you see it on my forehead? That's it. Like, it sounds so practical that um, you get to work through that sort of process and learn about these different people and then figure out what uh, the, the intervention is going to look like. Does that sound fair? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I emailed you and Rachel was because you'd done an awesome podcast about um, PECs and it it kind of gave the students everything I wanted them to know about PECs. And I wrote to you going, you know, hooray, thank you for that. And I think I one of the things I do is I curate those resources. So I look for YouTube videos or podcasts or other people's lectures that, that cover that content. So I've got several of yours. I've got an aided language stimulation, little powtoon of yours that I use as well. It's curated those little things so it's not all me talking and letting them you know be self-directed learners so they motivate themselves but also that they then have access to a whole range of useful resources for when they do qualify well i think that's that is you're speaking there about universal design for learning and the multiple means of representation and so now it's not yeah. just you talking about aided language stimulation but here's a, a fun powtoons video but then also here's a podcast about it and oh by yeah. the way um here's an actual practical experience where someone used it used aided language stimulation and you can learn about it now you have multiple ways uh for whatever way resonates best with for you does that sound fair and that's what you're trying yeah, to do yeah that's exactly yeah, that's exactly right. And it's also multiple means of action and expression because the thing that they finally submit is not an essay and it's not an exam. It's a it's a live presentation that they give in front of their peers. So they're educating their peers as well. But it's a different way of representing that they've understood that knowledge. But let me ask you a little bit more about these um, case studies. So uh, do the the pre-service teachers that you're working with, the clinicians? Sorry, that they're pre-service speeches, not teachers. Teachers, gotcha. Okay, speech. So speeches yeah. are speech language pathologists or pre-service Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they do, are they working independently or in small groups or is it one large group that's trying to figure it out? So the week by week cases, we, they are in, they're in small groups and they stay in those small groups till the final assignment, which they submit as a small group. But we're still fundamentally working together as a team. So I send them off into their small groups to discuss things, and then they might fill in um, a mentee survey, or I use a lot of Google Slides so that they go away and they fill in the information. And each slide has a title, you know, about this person, assessment results, what are your goals? So it's very scaffolded. Um, but they go off in their small groups and work. And then each week, one group has the responsibility to collate all the different versions that are out there and pull it together as one final version on behalf of the cohort. And I then give feedback. I record using a video a bit like this on Zoom and I talk at it. I give them feedback on what they've created for their case. And then next week we move on to the next case and we do it again. And it's a different group's turn to collate the, the slides. Gotcha. Okay. And let me make sure I heard that correctly. So each individual group is still working on the same case study at the same time. Yeah. It's not like there's this case study and then we rotate yeah. to the next case study and you go, so everyone's working. And would it be fair? I'm just guessing and speculating here that at the beginning of the case study, the, the groups are maybe more divergent and they come closer together about what uh, uh, they might, the, the interventions might be, or am I really just like, I'm off my mark there. No, I think there's, I mean, I think, I do think there's a, there's a, improvement but over the period of weeks that they get the hang of it but I also it's very scaffolded and I think the week the first week I'm probably doing most of the thinking mm. right and they're taking what I'm giving them and off they go and, and kind of write it up by the end they're starting to be able to do it more but I also they're very carefully planned case studies so that we have um, a child with Down syndrome who's just using some sign language. We have right through to an adult who's completely nonverbal um, and um, an unintentional communicator, but, but we really want them to focus on the kind of interaction stuff between the carers who work in a group home and this adult who doesn't have any communication. So each week, and then we've got somebody with, who's uh, 14 with um, some social language problems. So I keep going through and each week, what I'm trying to do is throw at them different assessment data so they're not seeing the same tools week after week, different interventions. So I go, oh, that one would be good. We could use PECS for that one. We could use aided language stim for that one. And so that they're seeing, and, and very often I feed them the interventions. I might say there are three interventions here that I would recommend. You guys go off and summarize each one of these, have a look at it, and then tell me what you think you would recommend for this person. So there's a lot of scaffolding on my part. Um, something else that I feel like 
uh, I'm getting a, a feeling from you and some of our interactions is those use of tools for that multiple means of representation. So you mentioned Menti or Menti Meter, I guess, is the website that creates yeah. Mentees, which are like polls, but it's more sophisticated than just polls. Like that's just, but to, to wrap it up for someone who doesn't know, that's, um, and then I know you have created some Sways too. Microsoft Sway yeah. is like a, how would you describe it? Like a, like a slide deck of some sort, but not exactly, it's right? It's halfway between a website and a PowerPoint is, is how I would describe it. So you've got this, you know, you can have the interactive things, but it's not as sophisticated as a website. You can't click on things and it goes to other places on the page. But yeah, I'm, I'm known for my use of tech in my world. Um, and I do, I use Mentimeter. I use, I use Padlet quite a lot. I use the whole Google suite of power of both Google docs and, and slides. So one of the things my groups do is they all work on a shared Google slide so that they're adding to it. And that means that when they're off in their little groups, I don't have to crash in on that conversation, particularly if we're online. I can see what they're doing by looking at the Google slides and see that information coming in. And that allows me to observe without intruding on their on their conversations and their learning. Um, so, yes, I use a lot of tech. Um, but I'd read, can I show you something? And we can, by all means, capture this and chuck it into the podcast if appropriate. So I have two things that I call decision trees. Okay, and I think this is because I'm a visual learner or a visual thinker. But um, so the first one, this is my assessment decision tree. And what it does basically starts off with, you know, why are you assessing this person at all? But at the top and then down the side here, I've got the sort of what is the process that you do? And first step one might be you interview the person, you take a case history, you get them to fill in a form um, and then you're going to do a profile. Okay. Um, or also known as informant report. Um, so an informant report tool is your profile. And then down here, you might be doing some structured observation. You might do some testing. So you might look at, you know, if you're talking about AAC devices, you might look at symbol size or layout or those sorts of things. And then, of course, you have to pull it all together at the end. So that's what's down this side. What's across here is your communicative level. So an unintentional communicator intentional but not yet symbolic or verbal or symbolic. And what I have done, for, and this is primarily for the students because there are so many tools. So the informant report tools down here, I've just listed the ones you might use with somebody who's unintentional and the ones you might use with somebody who's intentional and the ones you might use for somebody who's symbolic. Um, and then, so what they do is, is, you know, they start to become familiar with each of these. And my goal is that I want to, sometimes I'm gonna give them a communication matrix filled in that they have to look at the data. Sometimes I might give them a triple C um, or I might give them the AAC profile if it's somebody. So I'm creating these cases with data um, and that they then get given that information. Um, so this is my assessment decision tree, which leads... Sorry, can I stop you right there oh, and just ask a clar course. clarifying question? So when you were talking about scaffolding this for the students, the 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 way I'm envisioning this is at the beginning, like you said, you'll say, um, okay, for this particular student, you might be considering the communication matrix or the pragmatics profile because they're an unintentional communicator. But then later on down the line, you might say, all right, now what assessments do you think you would use in this case in this way they have grown uh, from you giving it to them to them deciding? Is that fair? A little bit. So what what happens, um, it depends, depends on the group and how fast they move and learn. And also because we've been teaching entirely online for the past two years, so doing it on Zoom has made it difficult. My original plan was that I would say to the students the night before they had to, to request, you've got a case study bit of information, Information, request the, the, the assessment data you'd like. I would then provide them with the assessment data I have because I don't have everything for everyone. And But I was getting them involved in that thinking. But primarily my goal here is that I want to give them a range of these things across the range. So they're going to have some unintentional communicators and I might be giving them um, the 
the pre-verbal communication schedule, or they might be symbolic and I might be giving them the social networks. So I've decided what they get. But this thing is what I teach in those first five weeks. That's the kind of the theory. This is the part where they learn the theory about how do we assess somebody. And I've been doing workshops around Australia about this stuff. I've got a, you know, a one day workshop that is how do we assess people with a, with a disability? And I've also got the one day workshop, which is about how do we um, set goals and intervene, which I will show you in a moment. The other thing I should say, of course, is that you won't know is Mosaic is my, my assessment tool that I used um, in my PhD. And um, it's been around a little while now. And um, certainly lots of people in Australia use it. And I get asked to come and do quite a lot of training about it. I'm not sure that your US audience will know anything about it. It stands for a model of observational screening for the analysis of interaction and communication. And so what we're looking at is we're observing, but we're not doing a very detailed four hours. It's going to take me 25 hours to code the video. It's snippets of video. It might be two minutes here and two minutes here because the idea is we're screening. It's not this in-depth <clears throat> thing. And that what we're then doing is analyzing the interaction between the two partners. And we're actually looking at what is the communication partner doing, right, as a way of determining the receptive language of the person with a disability. So if the communication partner is using lots of gesture or pictures or talking and signing at the same time, we're gonna code that. And then we're gonna code the response of the person. We're gonna be able to look at different communication partners in different environments, locations, what are the differences, what is working, what isn't. So it's the, as far as I know, it's the only tool that codes inter communicative communication partners, communicative behaviors. Dr. Smith, that is amazing. I want to see it because it totally makes sense, right? I mean, we're looking at what the communication partner is doing and we're matching it with what the uh, individual they're, they're with is doing. And we're seeing, yeah. and you're, you're, like you said, you're codifying it. So you're seeing like, well, this person is always using this, I don't know, uh, technique. Uh, their technique yeah. is they're using gestures, or like you said, they're using yeah. sign or they're using aided language stimulation. And the response we see from this snapshot is an increase or a flat line yeah. or a decrease. Oh my gosh, that is great. And we do something similar, but not at this stage. We're doing it often um, when we talk about uh, coaching. Uh, when we talk about coaching, we, we're looking yeah. at the communication partner and we're getting video models of them, but we're not actually necessarily tying it to the responses of the or the outcomes of the student at that point. So, or the person they're working with. So I love that idea. I'll send you the link to the website. There's a website and there's a book and you can, you know, have a look. And if you want to do another whole podcast about Mosaic at some point, we can. But <clears throat> um, so let me show you the second one. because so, so this is the, the second one that I use okay. is the second decision tree. OK, and this is in my paper, which I did. I sent to you, but you can link it for people. It's in this in this 2019 paper. But this is you'll see it looks go on. I was just going to say, I had planned to ask you all about teams. So I can, I'm so yeah. glad you're bringing it up. That's what I thought is if I show you both <laughs> kind of side by side, because they link. So this is the second decision tree and it is the team approach. So you'll see it looks really similar. It's got the unintentional on this side, the intentional, but not symbolic in the middle. So for my students, the scaffolding continues because we're talking about the concepts in the layout of the way that we previously talked about it. What I wanted to do was I would have students who would write goals for um, somebody who's got a significant disability and is maybe using PECs and, and making some basic requests. And they would say, this person will be um, using uh, speech uh, and fluent sentences in about six weeks, right? Or they're going to become symbolic or they're going to become intentional. And yes, the time frames were off. We expect that of students. We expect them to be optimistic that things will work much quicker than in real life they do. But they also couldn't work out what do you do with somebody who might not ever become symbolic? And so I know the presumed competence stuff is, of course, we have to always allow for that potential. But from a student point 
point of view, if they set goals that this is a person who currently is not symbolic and I'm going to introduce PECs, I'm going to use aided language stimulation, and they might not become symbolic, then what is my role as a speech pathologist? So I set out that moving to the next level, significant amount of moving might not be your primary goal to start with. Okay, so what else do you do? So I started off by saying, well, we need to be training communication partners. So that's the T. Okay, we need to be expanding what people are already doing. So this is that if you're doing it in one environment, we can expand that to another environment. If you can do this at home, then you can do it at school. Um, Sorry, do you mean the expanding is the the techniques that the communication partner is using or is are you mean that's the the ability of the of the the AAC user no i'll come back to the beginning because that was okay. okay so this is about goals this is about my frustration with students and novice clinicians who really found it difficult to set appropriate goals for somebody with a severe disability. So the goal is, so the goal will be, okay. Um, So the, the goal might be that the person will move to become a symbolic communicator, but it might not. The goal might be, I actually want to create a a more consistent communicative environment for this person so that everybody's doing the same thing. And in order to do that, I need to train communication partners. My intervention is therefore training, right? My goal is to create a more consistent communicative environment. Um, so that what we so then I'm going okay so what might you use for that we've got here we've got keyword sign we've got intensive interaction we've got use of object object symbols so we might be training communication partners we might be talking about um, functional communication training aided language stimulation so you're in order your role as the speech pathologist is you're going to train communication partners so that they know what it is that you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. So that's the, the so in terms of expand, I might say, well, this person is already using object symbols at school to anticipate what that what's going to happen next. We're going to go outside and play, or we're going to have a meal. There might be an object symbol that's used. So this is for somebody who's an unintentional communicator. We might be giving them um, the hat that they're going to wear outdoors to play to hold for a few minutes before they go outside. I'm allowing them to anticipate things that are coming up in their routine. Um, but what I now want to do is I want to say, okay, that's really good. What I want to do now is I want to expand that. It might be expanded so that we use more object symbols. My goal might be that they can anticipate a, a larger range of events in their life. Or it might be, I want to make sure that this is working at school. Let's see if we could do it at home as well. So I'm not changing. I'm not adding anything new. I'm not creating a new intervention. I'm not doing anything I haven't already done. I'm just enabling it to happen in multiple environments. Mm -hmm. Can I ask there, does that also mean the expand, could it be to additional people? Absolutely. So So then what it says here is we can expand. Expand. So looking at this, the tree here, it says to expand the activities the person participates in, okay, to expand the people the person successfully interacts with, okay, to expand the activities or situation in which the person uses potential communicative acts, okay, to expand the people that can interpret those potential communicative acts. So you can see that expanding and training are really linked. In order to expand the people, we have to train those people. So those are linked. Mm -hmm. We then get to augment. Augment in its broader sense, not thinking AAC particularly at this point, is adding something new. Okay, so when we augment, we're coming, we're adding something new. So this is this one here says to allow the person to make choices within their daily routine, assuming that they've not done that before. So we're going to add in something new. We might add in some new object symbols or um, calendar strategies or community request cards to allow them. So to allow them to anticipate activities within their daily routine. So the the um, the so the red parts are the goals, but they're goal domains. They're not. When I submitted this article for to um, a peer review, they came back and went. 
but it's not a goal because it's not smart. And I'm going, no, 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 it's not, it's not a goal. It's a goal domain. It's an area in which the specific measurable achievable goal sits. But we're actually thinking about what is our broad goal here? And so what I've got here is I've got, oh, I don't know, 15 little red boxes. Um, and my, my goal is that at the end of my course, the students will be able to plan one of these goals, goal domains. And I figure it's not exhaustive. It's not everything you could ever want to do with somebody. But if I get my students to be able to confidently go, okay, I know what my goal is. My goal is to expand the activities in which the person is using potential communicative acts. That's a really good goal. And then we can talk about, well, how are you going to do that? We're going to train. We might be using, we might need to train communication partners to recognize those potentially communicative behaviors. We might need a communication dictionary so that translates those behaviors so that all communication partners can become familiar with the specifics that that person needs. So these are my two decision trees. This is kind of how I teach is that they're going to be able, to, if they can do all of this by the end of my course, I'm fairly confident that they will go off into practice and have beginning skills that will allow them to get going. Can I tell you what I, well, let me reflect on this for a second, because something that I really like about the way you've um, organized this and structured it is that oftentimes I think, in, well, I'm not even going to say new clinicians, but um, anyone um, will often come up with interventions that are be all over the place, meaning yeah. uh, we need to do training, but we also need to expand, but actually yeah. what we need to augment, well, we augmented here, but we didn't expand there and we didn't actually do the training in the first place. We just assumed they yeah. knew it. We didn't train it. And it's this um, uh, shotgun approach as opposed yeah. to this structured approach that you've sort yeah. of outlined. And that's what I love. And you've made it visual so people can kind of yeah. see uh, the flow of like the yeah. decision-making there. So I And really I used like to that. teach it as a as PowerPoint slides, you know, slide mm -hmm. one, slide two, slide three. And I couldn't keep track of it. Never mind, they could keep track of it. So I brought it into this one diagram. The other thing, what you just said, really resonated with me is I'm not not students or or but but experienced clinicians who are stuck. They don't necessarily know what it is that they want to do with somebody. They will go to the shelf and they will pull off a tool and they'll go, "I can do pecs, right? <laughs> I can do." pod i can do what uh, go to i can use a go talk right because that's what i've got on the shelf and we start with an intervention and in my head i'm going would that be suitable for that kind of communicator but that's quite sophisticated and if the only things i've got on my shelf are those four things then i'm going to use it without necessarily it's kind of feature matching for intervention planning in a funny kind of way let me ask you this, when it comes to the team approach here and sort of following that, um, uh, something that was striking me was the the timeline, meaning I could see for some people, um, it could move relatively quickly, but for others, and this would probably be the, the, the greater challenge in my mind would be that it would be slow going and yes, okay, and, and that having that patience to not jump around and to take it slow is probably a, a skill we need to work on as well. What are your thoughts on the timeline of moving through team? I guess I talk to people about where the person is in their journey. And we know a lot about early intervention. We know that getting in there early, if you've got a, an 18-month-old newly diagnosed um, who's had no intervention whatsoever, you're going to go in there, it's going to be pretty intensive, you're going to do quite a lot of sessions, um, and you're going to expect that they're going to move relatively quickly. Okay, if you've got somebody who's in their 40s, who's had a reasonable amount of therapy over the years, who is still not yet using symbols communicatively, we're not going to expect that we're going to go in there and really fast things are going to change. So I talk about with the students about the need to look at the full person. Um, so thinking in terms of um, the environment. So I very much link back to the ICF, um, to the participation model, thinking about who's around, what are their skills, um, what therapy has this person had before? Are they in an environment that is um, conducive to 
AAC and disability. We gave, had a case study recently that we used in an exam with students. And when I had to stop and answer, well, what would you do, Andy, with this case? It was I would actually work really hard on getting this child into a school that is going to support their needs. Because right now, mum is a single mum, works lots of hours. Grandma doesn't speak English and she's caring for the child. Nobody is, can do AAC. Nobody can manage his challenging behaviours. The, the schoolies at are tearing their hair out and don't know what to do. Let's forget about everything else right now and prioritise supporting this family to find a, an appropriate educational placement. And from there, we can pick up the goals. And that... That kind of encouraging students to look at everything around and go, this family right now is not the place we need to start therapy. We need to find where it's going to be most effective. So it's all that. So it's the how fast are we going to go? What are the outside parameters? What therapy have they had before? What environment do they live and, and work and, and learn in? And um, then you start to talk about, well, how fast do we think this person's really going to go? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, and I see it also as a, when's, when there's a hiccup along the way, how, yeah. where do you go back to? Well, let's go back to our team. Uh, yeah. what I mean, team uh, the framework that you've developed not team framework, yeah, team, yeah. Right? Um, and, and let's look at, okay, where are we again and reassess yeah. because I yeah. could see like you do it once. Uh, I can imagine that's a trap people fall into. I did it once and I picked the goal and I picked where we're going to work. And then when there's a hiccup, it goes off the rails and we want to keep coming back to it. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. I also do a clinical supervision for, for qualified therapists. And this is absolutely sometimes we go, we've hit a roadblock. We don't know what we're going. OK, let's go back. Let's regroup. Let's rethink. Right. Are there other people we should be training or have we now moved along somewhere and we need different training? But the reason it's not working is because the communication partners in the environment aren't doing it. So it's not consistent. Therefore, we have to go back and go let's go back to training or let's sit where we are right now and just expand. Let's just expand people. Let's expand vocabulary. Let's not try anything new. Let's just grow this one bigger for the moment. And people need uh, people, children, adults with a disability need a break from therapy. Okay. And I don't mean they need, you know, that it's, it's torture or anything else, but actually they need time to consolidate and just saying, we're going to sit here for a little while. Let's just give it three or four months and not add in anything new. Let's just let it all settle. I think it's really important that we're comfortable with doing that. I think there is pressure on clinicians, particularly if that means they're going to keep coming back to therapy and we're going to be able to charge them and we're going to be able to fill in the IEP at the end of the year about what we've achieved. The pressure is on us. And sometimes we have to stop and say, that's my problem to deal with. (laughs) Right. But actually what the person needs is a little break right now. Yeah. Oh, so you are totally speaking my language. I remember uh, many moons ago when I was doing private speech and language therapy. So I'd work in the school during the day and afterwards I would do, I had that exact feeling like, well, I'm charging people for these, yeah. this time. I, I feel like I need to be doing something new or moving the ball along yeah. rather than, and, and that was probably putting well, certainly more pressure on myself, but more pressure on the individuals, including the parents to, to yeah. adopt yeah. things at a rate that they didn't, was, was not capable of doing or comfortable doing, you know, and just letting, I love how you put it, just sit in it for a while and enjoy the water that you're swimming in and get comfortable in your stroke. Let's do the the breaststroke, get good at the breaststroke before we go over and start learning the backstroke, right? Absolutely. I read a really interesting paper recently and I cannot remember the name of the person who wrote it, but I'll send it to you afterwards, um, who talked about family-centered practice. And it was a research paper, um, but what they said is that most clinicians feel like they are doing family-centered practice, but many families, most families would say that they that the work that they're receiving is not family centered. And I think that's a really we we it's the same as I started off at the beginning with the, you know, talk the textbook. We can all say, yep, I've done the I've done the course. I'm family centered. I know what that means. Here is a diagram. I know what that means. Of course I'm family centered. But actually I don't know that we always are. And I think that that is because 
we have an agenda. Um, I was reading this in the context of device abandonment and um, looking at the reasons why families um, abandon AAC devices, which of course we know is 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 a thing. Um, and I, I think that that sense of families feeling overwhelmed and us going, I know you feel overwhelmed right now, but I promise you, I promise you, it will be better, right? Your child will be much happier. They will be more successful. <laughs> I know that. And actually, that's just more pressure on the family. And I think we've got it. We've I, I, the, the paper I was reading was basically saw family attitudes as a barrier to AAC provision. Well, the barrier is from the goal of the clinician. My goal is to prescribe a device, right? If the family doesn't want it, then you're a barrier to me achieving my goal, okay? Mm. Not the, the family goal. And I get it that it comes from a place of, of good. It comes from what we do know about how AAC can improve lives. But I think we have to be really mindful of the fact that um, family-centered practice means going at the speed of the family if that's where they're at right now. And once it becomes, once they get over the hump and it becomes easier, of course things will speed up. But I, so that's that's where I'm sitting at in that in that reading I've been doing recently about device abandonment. Well, so that screams a couple of things to me. One is uh, uh, adopting an attitude of patience as the yep. clinician, because you, yep. you 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 want to push harder, uh, but pushing harder just might be pushing people away. Um, yeah. And then the second thought that I had there when we were talking about that was um, so much of, and I'm curious of your thoughts on this, it's so much of pre-service uh experience is about learning language, learning these tests, learning about how to uh, assessments, you know, learning the yeah. process of picking a tool and then implementing it well, you know, um, and that and, and knowing how I could implement it well as a clinician, right? Um, but I wonder how much pre-service time is really spent on understanding the family's perspective, right? And if that's a conversation we're having um, worldwide, you know, I feel like yeah. that's probably like a, um, yeah, and don't forget, consider the yes. family's perspective, you know, put that, it's, yeah. it's one test, it's one test uh, um, question on a on a multiple choice test someplace. And you're like, <laughs> what are your thoughts? And look, well, there are yes, several things. The first is we routinely have, I personally run um, seminars where um, AAC users, uh, parents of children with a severe disability, come along and talk to students. And so that gives them that, you know, we have people who come in, the students can ask questions live. It's not a lecture that, that, that is delivered. It's an open session. And, you know, typing out your message on a device can be really slow. And I want my students to see how slow that is. So it's not just a click a button and it reads out the message that the AAC user has perhaps typed in previously. It's typing out answers. So that's the first thing that we do. The second thing I would say is that we have to remember, I have to remember as an academic lecturer, I am responsible for their theoretical content, but they learn how to become a clinician um, in their practical sessions. So they go on placements where they have real clients that they have to manage. My job is to prepare them that people might be very distressed. They might cry. They might be angry because they're fed up with speech therapy. They might throw all kinds of emotions at you. And how do you deal with that? My job at the classroom level is to prepare them emotionally to deal with some of that. But what they need to do is experience that. And the only way they're going to do that is with real people. And that means go on placements. Um, and once you're qualified, of course, it's it's have clients and have supervision, have um, space to debrief about those issues. Um, and all of that is really important. I also think that we as educators sometimes try to protect our students from the really difficult cases, right, because it's too hard. And I think we need to be more willing to let students be involved in those really complex cases because that's how they're going to learn. That sounds like presumed potential to me. 
right? Yeah. Like, like let's in, not presume the students. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Let's presume yeah. they'll be able to figure it out, and that I'll have the skills to to be able to guide them to figure Correct. it out, um, and they'll learn that skills. And that really resonates with me. I've told a story on the podcast before, but um, when I was a student uh, and I went to my very first practicum in speech language pathology, the way it typically works is, you know, you start out in a practicum while you observe for a week or two, and then you get one of the clients and the, they'll observe you and give you, that wasn't my experience. It was always like day one, you have my entire caseload, go figure it out. And I was like, what? But by the end, I felt like I was in, I, I could roll into a job, you know, because yes. I had, I, I, it was, it was that thrown into the deep end and I learned to swim, you know? Um, so I kind of like that approach. Let's just uh, assume um, to have those. Let's not try and protect them, you know? I can tell you, so you probably know this, but I'll tell you and your listeners. Um, my daughter is now a speech pathologist. Um, and so she went to a different uni from ours, thankfully, um, <laughs> and became a speechy. Um, and she's now working. She was actually working for Liberator for a little while. So um, she knows Leanna and all that crew out here um, who you know as well. But she, um, one of her first placements, it reminded it was a school and there were like several speech pathology students with one clinical educator. And they had, they, they had a group of, of very well-behaved, you know, four-year-olds or six-year-olds, whatever it was in the school. And the teacher talked about, the speech pathologist talked about challenging behavior. And my daughter turned around and looked at her and went, that's not challenging behavior. Uh, you know, challenging behavior because she'd been around me. She'd also worked as a disability support worker. She'd seen it all. She'd seen people, you know, pulling their hair out and scratching themselves and throwing things. And these were very well-behaved little six-year-olds <laughs> sitting around a table who perhaps didn't want to say the word that was on the card in front of them. So It's all perspective, right? Where you come from and your experiences. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, all right. Well, let me wrap it up with a um, sort of the final question here. It's the question I always like to, to ask at the end of the interview, and that is someone who's been working in AAC for a long time. What are you curious about? What are you questing after? What are you what's kind of got you jazzed about the world of AAC? Um, I think, OK, so the the story I was telling you a little bit before about the reading I'd been doing, I've actually just written and submitted a paper about um, something called the capability approach. And the capability approach comes from um, an economist called Amartya Sen. Um, and it started off by being this very, you know, economics focused and philosophical perspective about the world um, and about capabilities and the fact that um, people have, um, we don't just give them resources, right? So the resource in this case could be an AAC device, okay? We don't, so we, in terms of resources, we look at things like the school that they're in, the support that they've got, the funding they've got, they've got a device. What they have is they have multiple capability. So the Amartya Sen was arguing that you could give people money, people who were homeless, you could give them money to buy food, but they could still choose to use that money to buy drugs or alcohol. Okay. Ultimately, that the way we change the world is we have to look at the choices people make and the, the set of capabilities that they have. So in terms of AAC, the, the set of capabilities that they have is they could choose to continue to use their nonverbal communicative behaviors. They could choose to use a low-tech device system. They could use to, to use signs, even if their signs are not very intelligible. They could choose to use their AAC device. And therefore, we have to view that as a set of possible capabilities, and we have to factor in their choice. And so for me, this is the stuff I've been embedded in for the last year, writing this paper and reading about it. And I think it, for me, this is really exciting. It's building in, it looks at abandonment in a different way. It doesn't say they abandoned the device. It says they're making a choice right now about which AAC system, which mode of communication they want to use at any point in time, according to how they're feeling. Are they tired? Are they hungry? Who they're with? Can I get this message across as effectively? Parents who abandon the devices, maybe it's because they can understand their children without the device, right? That's not necessarily abandonment. 
that's a choice. Mm-hmm. So that's for me, that's where I'm sitting right now. And that's the thing I'm, I'm kind of most excited about is, is bringing this information to the AAC community. Well, I love that. That is certainly a perspective that we have learned over and over again here on the podcast that is um, speaking to actual users talking about, well, sometimes I use this and sometimes I use this and sometimes I use this. And I always make the analogy that for, for me. I do the I do the exact same thing. Sometimes I use a computer and sometimes I use my phone and sometimes I use an iPad and it's just another set of tools and I make choices about what I use. And yep. sometimes th- tools that I've used and I know how to use die off. Like for years I would use a clipboard and I'd carry all my notes on a, yep. on a clipboard, but then yep. that has changed, you know? And like you said too, um, it could change based on all sorts of different variables. My, how much sleep I got, what, uh, yeah. who I'm, who I'm talking to, right? What yeah. environment yeah. I'm in. All those things are just uh, uh, options. So maybe would you say, um, and would this person sort of suggest that um, our our job as the clinician is to provide the options and help people yeah. guide them to uh, give them frameworks to think about what would be the optimal choice in certain cases. Yeah. Yeah, I I like your your example of likening it to what you use. I I talk about shoes, right? If I'm going on holiday and I need to pack into my suitcase, can I get away with just one pair of shoes? Uh, probably not, because it depends on the weather and it depends on what I'm going to be doing. Am I going to be doing lots of walking? So yeah, we all make those choices. I'm not abandoning my favorite high heeled shoes. I'm just not taking them on holiday right now because I can't see I'm going to be in a situation where I'm going to be able to wear them so for me that's yeah Oh, I really like re, the way we're recontextualizing that word abandonment and just talking yeah. about options that people have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a great way to wrap it up. Do you have any final thoughts? I don't, but it was great to talk to you. It was really fun. Uh, well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing this. Real quick, tell us where people can find some of the um, the frameworks that you were sharing, the team framework and the other diagram about the assessments. Where can people find that information? So the team framework is published, but it's in a it's in a an Australian publication that I don't think is widely accessible. But it is up on my ResearchGate um, page. So if you go on there, you'll find that on there. Um, I would also look at the Mosaic website. So that is www.mosaiccommunication.com.au. But I can send you those links, and then you can maybe put them on the bottom of your. We absolutely will. We absolutely will. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. We appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.